All right, so uh, what we're doing, we're going to start up in 317. 317 we covered last week, but it really is a transition. It really is an important part of how Paul goes from what he was talking about to what he is going to talk about. These last few weeks, we've been talking in Colossians 3 about what it looks like to become a Christian. What does it look like to put on Christ? He says, whenever we put faith in Christ, when we trust in Jesus, he says what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to take off the old selves, our old desires of the flesh that lead to sin and selfishness. We're to take those things off and we're to put on the characteristic traits of Christ and what Christ has done, who Christ was. So if you look at 3.8, you see what we're supposed to take off, anger wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. And then in verse 12, he tells us what we're supposed to put on. We're to put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And we're supposed to forgive and put on love. So we're supposed to take off the old. We're supposed to put on the new. And then in verse 17, he tells us that whatever we do in word or deed, we're to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he is saying is he's answering the question, does Christ in your life make a difference? Does Jesus Christ in your life, putting on Christ, does he make a difference in your life? Or is Christianity just this thing that you do on Sunday mornings? Or is Christianity just this thing that you vaguely believe in in regards to life after death? What Paul is saying is that if we are putting our faith in Christ, then Christ should affect the most fundamental relationships that we have in this life. Christ should affect our marriages. Christ should affect our family life. Christ should affect our life at work. So what we want to do this morning is we want to look at each of these fundamental areas of our life. And we want to ask the question, what does it look like to put Christ on? What does it look like to put Christ on, first of all, in our marriages? Let's look at verses 3, 17 through 19. He says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands in the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. I'm not sure if you've heard or not, or have experienced it or not, but marriages can be hard. Did you realize this? Marriages can be hard. You have these two individual persons with all their personality and all their history that we sometimes describe as baggage, right? And then we put two people, sometimes with two different bank accounts, sometimes with two different career goals, and you bring them together in holy matrimony, and two people become one. It's a lot like, I've never done this because I think it would be cruel, but I've heard uh, that beta fish don't like each other. Have y'all heard this? Like you go to the fish store to buy a beta and they're like, whatever you do, don't put them in the same tank. And these beautiful individual fish are quite happy alone, but when you put them together, they get quite territorial. 
And sometimes marriages can feel that way. Marriages can feel like we are just not going in the same direction, that we're not even on the same team. But what Paul is saying here is that if we are putting on Christ, then it should affect the relationship between husbands and wives. And so Paul, in verses 18 and 19, tells us how it should affect them. And I'm going to tell you from the get-go, in today's text... In today's sermon, sorry, my, my microphone keeps falling off my ear. It's almost like it's not natural. Um, but what Paul does is Paul talks about some pretty controversial issues. And he gets, starts off, like he's, he just comes out swinging and he starts with one of these controversial issues. And this is what he says in verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, it very well might be that you grew up in the church and you've heard this your whole life, and you're thinking, well, of course, that's just Scripture. Of course, this is just what's supposed to happen. But if you are new to the faith, if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to the Bible, and you hear this verse that says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, it just doesn't sound right, does it? And I think it's in part because in our society, we have so emphasized individuality. We have so emphasize our our rugged individualism that any idea of submission means lesser but when the bible talks about women he does say that wives are supposed to submit themselves but it does not mean lesser and to understand this one of the places that we need to go back to is the book of genesis in genesis chapter one and two we have god creating the world he fills it with the birds of the sky, the, the fish of the sea, the, the animals on the ground. And then the crown of his creation is humanity. He creates Adam, but Adam is alone. And God looks to Adam. He says, Adam, I want you to, to subdue the earth. I want you to take this garden that you're placed in, and I want you to tame the wilderness of this world in order to make the whole world a garden. And so he tells Adam to do this, and Adam begins, and he begins to name the animals. And after he names the animals, one of the things he discovers and realizes is that he's alone. Every animal on the earth has its male and female complement, but there was no one that complimented Adam. And so God says, let us make Adam a what? Do you remember the word it uses? A helper. Let us make Adam a helper. And once again, when we hear the word helper, it very well might be that you begin to bristle, that you don't like the word helper. Because when we hear the word helper, you know what our minds translate that as? It's another young lady who just doesn't like it. I'm t- no, just, uh, <laughs> what, what, what our mind translates that as, as maid, as cook, as subservient, And that's what we hear when we hear the word, let's create Adam a helper. Let's give him a wife. But when we look at scripture, if we want to understand scripture well, one of the things we always have to do when we read a passage is we have to carefully define our terms. We have to carefully understand the text and how the the scriptural authors are using the words. And when he uses the word helper, it's not someone who is weak, It's not someone who is 
who is lesser than. But every other time that word helper is used in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's referring to one of two things. Either a king or a prince coming to the aid of an ally in distress or God coming to the help of his people. Now, does that sound lesser? Does that sound weak? Of course not. Of course not. God gave Adam this impossible task of, of filling and subduing the earth, something that he could not do alone. And so what he said is, I am going to give you your compliment. I am going to bring you your, your ally, your aid, and I am giving them the same mission that I'm giving you. And together you can fulfill the mission of God in your life. When we look at marriage and the role of a husband and wife, what he is saying is you have the same mission in life. But you cannot accomplish that mission on your own. You need one another to complement each other. So whenever he says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands because you are the husband's helper, that's what he's saying. You are the, the king coming to aid the ally. But too often times we don't see each other as allies, but rather competitors. But I want you to notice something else it says in verses 18. Notice how it says, wives, submit yourselves to your husband. In every other relationship in this text, whether it's children to their fathers or slaves to their masters, the command is simply obey. But it does not say, wives, obey your husbands. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. That submission is a gift that a wife gives to her husband. It's not something that a husband demands from his wife. Submission is given, and submission is given in a Christian wife because she realizes one thing, that her submission, that her coming to aid her husband in the mission that God has given that family, that she realizes it's not just for her husband, but that she realizes it's part of her worship of God. It's part of her faithfulness, something that she is giving, something that she is sacrificing as her worship towards God. Then after he speaks to the wives, he turns to the husbands and he instructs the husbands of what it looks like to ha have Christ put on in the role of the husband. He says, husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. He tells the husband to do two different things. The first thing he tells them to do, he said, husbands, I want you to love your wives. In the book of Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul is, is talking to the church in Ephesus, it's a very parallel passage. This is what he says to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her. Husbands, if you are a Christian, then Christ should so change your life so that when you approach your wife, you approach them and humble service and sacrifice that you lay down your life for your wife. And that is how we start to approach them. And I'm just wondering, I'm wondering, 
would it be easier? I want to get the same before the service is over. Would it be easier for a wife to humbly give her submission to her husband if she looked at her husband and he was always sacrificing for her? He was always giving of himself for her. Husbands, if you are a Christian and you are a husband, you are called to lay down your life for your wife. And this is hard because oftentimes we get so wrapped up in our own world, don't we? We have our work, we work hard at it, and we like finish work and we just want to go home and we want to relax and we want, we want a little peace and we just want to check out. That is not loving our wives as Christ loved the church. We do not have the option to check out at home. But when we get home, we have to get in the right brain space, in the right heart space to say before I walk through that door is I am now on again. I've, I've got to like turn on my mind and I've got to engage my wife. I have to engage with my kids. But what we want to do is we want to separate ourselves and we want to, to be in our own world. We could ask the question for both husbands and wives. Well, what if my husband or what if my wife isn't a Christian? Or we could ask the question, well, what if my husband or what if my wife, they call themselves Christian, but they're just not engaging they're not pursuing Christ. The way that Paul has phrased each of these statements in 18 and 19 is that it doesn't matter. Wives, you can offer your submission and your help even to an unbelieving husband. Husbands, you can love your wife the way that Christ loved the church even if your wife doesn't love Jesus. Ask me this, or answer me this. Like when, when Christ died for us, when he gave his life as a sacrifice, were we loving him or were we his enemy? We were his enemy. He loved us and he sacrificed himself for us while we were the enemy. If we wait until everything is perfect, before we can say, all right, now's the time I'm going to offer my help and my submission, or now's the time I'm going to offer my sacrifice, we'll never do it. We just have to walk in that faithfulness along the way. Marriage is hard, but man, when we think about what it could be, when, when a wife offers her submission and a husband offers his, his sacrifice in his life, and you have both partners of a marriage giving and, and, and for one another, you don't have to look out for yourself because there's always someone else there saying, let me help you. Let me give for you. It's a giving relationship that Christ is calling us to. Christ should affect our marriages. But he then moves on in verse 20 through 21 to say that it should also affect our families. Look at, look at verse 20 and 21. It says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. 
I love the fact that we have so many children in our church and even, even in our room here today. They're not, they're not all at Children's Church because the Bible does speak to children. The Bible just doesn't speak to adults. The Bible also speaks to children. And he shows us and the Bible tells us what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Jesus and be a child. And he says, if you are a Christian, if you are putting on Christ and you are a child, then one of the things that you do to express your faith in Christ is you obey. Obedience to your parents is your faithfulness towards Christ. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. What Paul is doing is he is quoting the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is that we honor our father and mother. And if we want to honor our father and mother, Paul makes a connection. The way that we honor our parents is by obeying our parents. And when we obey our parents, what we end up doing is we end up honoring not only our parents, but we also honor our Father in heaven. One of the things that I've oftentimes told my kids when they were younger and still sometimes to this day is how, how can you honor a Father in heaven that you can't see if you can't honor an earthly father that you can see? We honor our parents through obedience. But here's the thing. We, uh, we parents know the way that we can get around obedience because we all did it when we were growing up. And there's different ways that we uh, disobey with like sophistication, right? There are different ways that we can disobey. One of the ways that we can disobey is we can absolutely just rebel. A parent asks a child to do something and the child's like, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't believe I will today. And they just rebel against the parent. Never a good idea uh, because part of loving our children is disciplining our children. Uh, being, putting on Christ doesn't mean we don't discipline. The Bible says that the Lord disciplines the children that he loves. So as Christian parents, we discipline the children that we love. So what are the other ways that we disobey? One of the ways we do it is we just outright rebel. Another way that children disobey is that we obey slowly. Have y'all seen this? I want you to do something. Okay. And then they move so slowly. It's almost like they forget what they were told to do in the first case. And it's like, hey, you got to do it. And it's like we're always having to come alongside and encourage, all right, come back. You were supposed to do this. But the obedience is so slow that it's tantamount to disobedience. It's the same as disobedience. Another way that we disobey is that we might rebel outright. We might obey slowly. Another way that we disobey is we disobey or we just obey partially. I know you told me to do this project over here and I'll do most of it, but I'm going to leave some of it undone. I'll mark it up to I'm just not noticing it, but it's just going to be left undone. Uh, have you ever heard about uh, Amish quilters? Have you ever heard of Amish quilters? They say Amish quilters are so good that they could make a perfect quilt without any mistakes but that sometimes they intentionally put a mistake in there 
just to show that they're not perfect, right? Uh, it's almost, that's not what kids are doing when they leave something undone. I, I just wanted to show you that I'm not perfect here. I don't want to be perfect, so I left something undone. But no, it's, it's part of the way that we disobey and dishonor is by not obeying fully. We obey partially. Another way that we disobey is that we grumble through our obedience. We might obey But in obeying, we might complain about the fairness of being what we've been asked to do. We might complain about the timing. Well, I can't believe you asked me to do this in the middle of the show I was watching. Let's forget the fact that you can pause your show these days. It's not like in my day where you like leave in the middle of the show, the show's over and you'll never see it again. You can pause it now. But they might complain about the timing. They might complain about the fairness. They might complain about about the task itself. But complaining throughout the tasks is also a form of disobedience. Parents, if you are here, one of the ways that we train our children in the Lord is that we try to show them what it looks like to obey. At my kids' school, they do these these sound-offs, and they say, how do students obey at our school? And they say, we obey, I hope I don't mess this up, Uh, we obey quickly, completely, and cheerfully. What does obedience look like? We obey quickly. We obey completely. We obey cheerfully. The great great work of uh, Little House on the Prairie. I think it's Paul or Ma, I can't remember which one said it, that said anything that must be done uh, is best done cheerfully or best done joyfully. Something's got to be done. You might as well just have joy while you're doing it. Why grumble? Why complain? Because in part, Our obedience and how we obey as children is part of our worship to God. He then turns to the fathers and says, Fathers, if you are a father and you are also a Christian, what does it look like to put on Christ as you're being a parent? You might say, well, why doesn't it speak to fathers and mothers here? This is kind of a first century context thing. Uh, Fathers were the head of households. Uh, in the first century, but in a different way than, than you and I view head of the household. Um, for example, uh, the, the fathers and the head of the household in the first century ruled with like a absolute authority and iron fist. So if a, if a woman had a child, it was the father who determined, are we going to keep this child or expose it to the elements to kill it? And they had that control of life and death throughout the child's life to the point where one day their child gets married, the father could decide whether or not he wanted his son or daughter to get a divorce. That was a type of power and control the father in the first century had. And so he is speaking directly to the father saying, listen, you've got got this power and control, but what does it look like when your power and your control are controlled by Christ? And he tells them, one, do not exasperate your children. Do not lead them to anger. Do not lead them to wrath. How do we do that? We lead our children to wrath oftentimes by walking in the flesh. When we walk in the flesh and we as fathers walk in anger and wrath and malice and we use that obscene talk, when we do that, it affects our children. It affects how they view God and view the faith. And our anger oftentimes leads them to have that same anger. Why? 
they're mirroring what they see. It's one of the scary things that will, that will really sober you up when you realize that as fathers, we pass on our gods and our traits to our children. If you want to pass on the God of control and the God of climbing the ladder, man, you can pass that God on to your children so easily. But if you want to humble yourself before the Lord and put on Christ, you can also give them Christ. He says, do not lead your children to wrath or anger so that they will not become discouraged. We need to define that word discouraged. What do we mean by so that they will not be discouraged? It doesn't mean that they're going to be sad. We don't want to make them melancholy. That's not what he's saying here. When he's saying we don't want to discourage our kids, he's saying we do not want to push them away from the faith. We don't want to live and act in such a way to where they want nothing to do with our God. So as Christian fathers, what are we supposed to do to engender a love for Jesus in our interactions with our kids? And we see that in a few different places in the Bible. One of the places in Ephesians chapter 6, it's a parallel passage to this again. He says, fathers, don't stir up anger or wrath in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That word uh, training and instruction in the Old Testament, he uses the words uh, nurture and admonition. What does it mean to bring your children up in the training or in the nurture of the Lord? This really has to do with our actions. How do you act around and with your children? Are you putting on Christ before their eyes? Are you walking in compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience? Are you offering forgiveness and seeking forgiveness when we've messed up? And are we putting on love? We need to walk out before our children what it looks like to be a Christian man. We need to not put on our flesh and walk in the ways of the world in wrath and anger and malice. Another passage that gives us instructions on how we are to walk with our children is found in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is writing to the Israelites. This is right after the Ten Commandments is given in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, Deuteronomy 5 is the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 6, he's, he's talking about how we live this out. This is what he says. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. So if you're a Christian father or a Christian mother, the first rule of parenting is this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is your first act and first role of parenting. You get that right, you'll get everything else right too. But listen to what he says. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and with all your strength. He says, these words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart and repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on the city gates. Do you understand what he's saying about parenting here? 
He is saying there is this, there is this nurturing that's taking place. The actions. Your children see you loving Jesus. They see that you have compassion and gentleness and patience and humility. And as Christ is working on your heart, Christian parent, the other thing you're supposed to do is not just nurture and train, but you're also supposed to instruct and admonish. So you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then you repeat these words to your kids. Fathers, mothers, are you repeating the word of God to your kids? Or is the only Jesus they receive is a Jesus that they receive on Sunday mornings or maybe in a curriculum somewhere? He is saying that as you sit down, as you get up, as you go along the way, our God is to be central in our lives. It is a constant training that we go about. Christ should make the ultimate difference in our lives. Finally, I don't, I don't want to skip over this one. This is pretty, pretty massive and I don't have the, all the time in the world. We are five minutes ahead of the other service. Uh, we hit this like right when we were supposed to get out. So we got five extra minutes in the other service. All right, this next section, Paul deals with slaves and masters. This is what he says. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. This passage, this text has been abused throughout the centuries. Some people have looked at this text and they have said, see, the Bible condones and endorses slavery. But do not be deceived. That is not what the Bible is doing here. What the Bible is doing here is he is speaking to the situation that people found themselves in. Slavery was a reality in the first century. And like a good pastor, the Apostle Paul says you might be a slave and you might come to Christ. And so how does Christ affect the way that you engage with your slave master? And he's saying it might be that you're a slave master and you come to faith in Christ. And he's saying if you are a slave master, how should you now live out your faith? It's very complex because what's interesting about Colossians Colossians was delivered by a man named Onesimus. And Onesimus was an escaped slave that came to faith in Christ and then became a companion and a friend of Paul. And one of the things that Paul did is he sent this letter back to Colossae with Onesimus. And Onesimus had two letters in his hands. One for the church of Colossae and one for Philemon. Philemon was the master of Onesimus. And what's beautiful is when you read Philemon, Paul says 
I want you to receive Onesimus, not as a slave, but as a brother. Paul wrote to the situation that people found themselves in. We don't have institutional slavery now, so what do we do with this text? One of the things that we do with it is we, we can apply this text to just how we work as individuals. We have roles of authority uh, that, that we still live in. If you're in the army, it might be that you have a commanding officer. If you're in the classroom, it means you have a principal. If you're at a job site, you have a supervisor or a foreman. Uh, so we have these roles of authority. And what Paul is doing through this text is showing us what it looks like to put on Christ in your work. So what does it look like? He says that whenever we are at work, we realize that our work is not just to our supervisors. Our work is not just to our foreman. Our work is not just for the principal, for for the commanding officer, but that when we work, whatever we do, we are ultimately working for the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ is our true boss. We have this great song that we heard, Rain for Roots, I think was the album. Um, where it's saying, uh, who is the boss? And it goes through the different siblings. They're not the boss. They're not the boss. And it's like, Jesus is the boss, right? So whenever we work, we realize that Jesus is our ultimate boss that we are working for. And so when we work, he's saying we work with all of our heart. We work with all of our energy. And we give what we have. Why? Because we are working for Jesus, I love what he says in verse 22, and I think it's so applicable for today. He says, and if you're reading ESV or King James, it says, don't work as eye pleasers. Here in our text and in the CSB, it says, don't work only while being watched as people pleasers. There's this idea that some people, when they go to work, they work while they're being watched. And then when they're not watched, they just kind of let up and relax. And the age of working online in the age and working from home, this is even so much more difficult to be honest and work hard. And what Jesus is telling us through the Apostle Paul is that when we work, we give all we have because we are not working for man, but rather we are working for Christ. You see the complexity of all these things that we're trying to balance We are putting on Christ. And whatever relationship we have, whether it's between a husband and a wife, a child and a parent, or a boss and an employee, each of these relationships, we're to clothe ourselves in Christ. Christ makes the ultimate difference in our lives. Is Christ making the ultimate difference in your life? Let's stand and pray.